Well, we're still here, so let's talk about it. I'm not sure which episode we're on. If we were to number the uh, end-of-life choices episodes, this of euthanasia, terminal sedation, uh, the medical aid in dying, I covered it a little bit last time, but this time I want to speak specifically about medical aid in dying. Specifically, I want to talk about the Oregon model. Oregon was the first state to be granted medical aid in dying, or at that time it was called physician-assisted suicide. After a lengthy court battle, 10 years later, the Supreme Court agreed that they should be able to proceed, and I'm going to share a little bit about that today. The reason it's such a groundbreaking model is because they were the first, they fought hard, they examined all the laws, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and as such, countries and other states have adopted the Oregon model when they are considering their own laws and procedures for medical aid in dying. Let's take a look at the Oregon model. There's an organization called the American Public Health Association. They long recognized the patient's right to self-determination at the end of life and that for some terminally ill people, death can sometimes be preferable to any alternative. The rights include patient's ability to express their wishes in an advanced directive, appoint a surrogate to make care decisions when the patient is no longer able to do so, and to have these wishes honored by health care providers. They go on and say, The quality of a dying person is a personal subjective assessment, and each dying person, family member, and loved one may have his or her own sense of what a good death would be. This may include dying quietly and with dignity, being pain-free, and without distress. Continuing, a small fraction of dying people confront a dying process so prolonged and marked by such extreme suffering that they determine hastening impending death to be the best alternative. Many Americans believe that the option of death with dignity should be open to those facing a terminal illness marked by extreme suffering. So that was part of the Oregon statute. Now I'm going to describe the Oregon model for you. They title it the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. They also abbreviate this to DDA. What I'm reading from was dated in 2006, so that would have been after about 10 years of being able to have the law in their favor, only to undergo the battle that ended up in the Supreme Court. They established procedures under which a competent, terminally ill adult in the care of an attending physician may obtain a prescription for medication to provide control over the time, place, and manner of his or her impending death. The Dignity Act was recently considered and upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. That was in 19, or excuse me, that was in 2006. The American Public Health Association filed a brief and said in that brief, Researchers have consistently found that experience in Oregon does not bear out concerns that physician assistance would be disproportionately chosen by or forced on terminally ill patients who were poor, uneducated, uninsured, or fearful of the financial consequences of their illness. I think that paragraph is very important because I have heard that in many of the discussions, podcasts, blog posts, 
this idea that people with disabilities are rather concerned that their physicians or other family members may push them toward death before they themselves are actually ready to, simply because they have this terminal illness or they have a disability of some kind. Or if a certain demographic didn't allow to be able to cover medical costs. All right, they have to be under the care of an attending physician. The physician has to determine that the patient is mentally competent, is an Oregon resident, and has an incurable and irreversible disease that has been medically confirmed and will, with reasonable medical judgment, produce death within six months. So that's the same six months that Medicare requires for a patient to be put into hospice. Six months terminal, six months left to live. This Death with Dignity Act requires that. Then the attending physician also has to inform those requesting the medications to hasten their death of their diagnosis, their prognosis, the risks and probable results of taking the medication to die, and alternatives to hastening their death, including but not limited to hospice care and pain relief. Continuing further, the consulting physician must confirm the attending primary physician's prognosis. So now we've got a second physician coming in, examining and talking with the patient, and then they must confirm what the first physician determined. Finally, then, the attending physician can prescribe but must not administer the medication to enable the person to hasten death in a humane and dignified manner. So I thought that was really important because as we go and think back to Dr. Kevorkian, who was in the late 80s, I believe 1987 is when he finally was put in prison, physicians want to be able to help their patients. And so what they do then is just not actually give the medication to the patient. The patient must be able to do that themselves. In addition to the physician's consultation and the attending physician and the not administering the medication, the Death with Dignity Act also requires the providers to file reports with the state documenting their actions. Many articles have been put into journals about the Oregon model, and it demonstrates, according to the Death with Dignity Act writers, that patients are not put at risk when a carefully drafted law is in place. There's no data collection stating that people with terminal illness are more likely to choose the death with dignity uh, as opposed to others. So because there's no law requiring a collection of data on who actually uses the medication, we don't really have any hard numbers. But what I keep hearing over and over again from physicians is that a very small percentage of their patients actually take the medication to end their life. Most of them just simply want the choice to do that. And that in and of itself brings great peace to them. So this is another piece of the commentary that encompasses the Oregon model. There is no evidence that since its passage, Death with Dignity Act has had a disproportionate impact on a person in vulnerable populations, including persons with disabilities. They conjecture that this is because there's no requirement to collect the data. Some in the disability community, however, remain concerned that the Death with Dignity Act poses a threat to those with disabilities, and they argue that the many protections and safeguards that have been put into place are insufficient 
and that no safeguard would ever be sufficient. Concerns about whether enough data are collected or whether the data collected are preserved for a long enough period of time have been raised by opponents of the Death with Dignity Act. Opponents also suggest, according to this article, that unreported instances of death with dignity may be occurring in Oregon. But again, there's no data to support that. What has been determined is that folks who have a higher level of education or a higher income bracket are most likely to choose the Death with Dignity Act. So going back to this rare use of the Death with Dignity Act, during the first 10 years since its adoption, the report is that only 341 Oregonians chose to use it. This has kind of increased over time, and in 2005, 12 deaths for every 10,000 Oregonians was reported, which I find interesting that they have this data because they just said no one's required to have it, except that the physician does have to file reports stating their actions. So I'm wondering here that there might be a discrepancy because the doctors are stating that they gave the medication, in other words, made it available to the patient, but they are not allowed to administer it. So we can't really know for certain if the patients actually took it, at least from what I have gathered here. So this report goes on to say, the annual reports reveal that each year a significant number of patients obtain the medications but do not go on to take them, reflecting that these patients are comforted to have this option but do not make use of it. So they put this little piece of statistics in here. A survey of Oregon physicians found that they had granted one in six requests for death with dignity and that only one in 10 requests actually resulted in hastened death. Again, this is not super accurate by my reading, but you get the idea. The overriding sense is people want the choice and they're willing to go through whatever it takes to be able to have the medication ready for them when they are ready to take it. Some never actually do, however, as we've just read. The state of Vermont was one of the next states to adopt the Death with Dignity Act. They actually assigned a task force to review the Oregon experience and then wrote a report. And they decided and determined through this task force that the Oregon Death with Dignity Act had not had an adverse effect on end-of-life care and in all probability probably enhanced it, which I find very interesting and we'll definitely talk about. It is noted here that doctors report that since the law was passed, they made efforts to improve the ability to provide adequate end-of-life care. So hospice, palliative care, better pain control are all medical interventions or aid is in treatments so that even though a person has chosen death with dignity because they have better pain control or are receiving better care, they go on to feel better and maybe subsequently don't choose the death with dignity option or at least not follow through with it. The other thing is it says here is that they also have been able through this improved care to recognize depression and other psychiatric disorders and, you know, being able to just refer patients more frequently for care. The Death with Dignity Act is an important option for people with terminal illness psychologically because it gives them autonomy to make their own choices, control over when they will die, and a choice, which if you've ever talked to someone with terminal illness who has gone through all of their 
treatments, and nothing remains, choice is gone too. And then a bunch of physicians who had given report said that this idea of autonomy, control, and choice was the overwhelming motivational factor behind the decision to use death with dignity. It also prevents real and significant harms inherent in the ongoing, covert, back-alley practice in the aid of dying, which I suppose can happen since we do have access to so many medications. The report goes on to say that physicians throughout the country report that they regularly receive requests for aid in dying, but the evidence shows that complications are more likely when this is done without regulation and in the quote-unquote back alley. And this is because of the extended time until death after consuming the medications. If they, you know, don't really know the right dosage and kind of try to figure it out on their own without medical care or medical uh, presence. And the stress and anxiety for the patient and the family is much higher when they recognize that they are not doing something that's actually legal. So the American Public Health Association also just really has stressed the importance of using accurate language. So before I said in 1996, when Oregon first was able to enact the physician-assisted suicide, that was the vernacular of the day. But now the American Public Health Association does not want it to be called that. They actually reject the term assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide. They explain this by saying that profound psychological differences distinguish suicide from the actions under Death with Dignity Act. The American Psychological Association has recognized, according to the American Public Health Association, That, quote, it is important to remember that the reasoning on which a terminally ill person whose judgments are not impaired by mental disorders bases a decision to end his or her life is fundamentally different from the reasoning a clinically depressed person uses to justify suicide. Medical and legal experts have recognized that the term suicide or assisted suicide is inappropriate when discussing the choice of a mentally competent, terminally ill patient to seek medications that he or she could consume to bring about a peaceful and dignified death. There are many more pages talking about the Oregon model, but for our purposes today, I wanted to throw this out here as an overview There are certain rules, which I'm going to cover momentarily, but I wanted you to get the idea of what the American Public Health Association is saying about the Death with Dignity Act, what physicians have reported, and what opponents uh, believe. As I said before, it's a very politicized and controversial topic, and we're just going to keep trying to come at it from different angles, and ultimately, it is the patient's choice. And that's the whole point. In order to carry out the medical assistance in dying or death with dignity, there are some specific rules. And I'm going to lay some out for you. This one came from Ontario, who is following the Oregon model. It's a different country, but using the Oregon model, it's a more than a one-sided view, I guess. That's why I brought it in. Death with dignity in Ontario, Canada requires personal consent. They have to fill out a form, for example. No substitute is allowed to consent on the patient's behalf. No one can make this request for the patient. 
The request for medical aid in dying can be completed by someone else if you're unable to, but it has to be observed by an independent witness on the same day, only after your doctor or your nurse practitioner says you have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. So you have to have your medical consult, and then you can make the request, and someone can fill it out for you if you can't. You also may withdraw the request at any time by any sounds, gestures, or words in order to demonstrate that you refuse medical aid in dying. The eligibility criteria must be met, which are you must be 18 and older, capable of making healthcare decisions and providing informed consent, making your decisions voluntarily, and that you have a serious, incurable illness, disease, or disability, and you are enduring, and remember this is ands, not or, enduring physical or psychological suffering caused by a medical condition or a state of decline that is intolerable to you and cannot be relieved under conditions you consider acceptable. If you seek medical aid in dying solely for mental illness, you are considered ineligible. Once you're deemed eligible, though, you must undergo a second assessment by another MD or nurse practitioner. If your death is not reasonably foreseeable, you have to wait 90 days from the first assessment before you can proceed. If your capacity to consent is imminently declining, then the time can be reduced. The doctor or the nurse practitioner can give the drugs or you can order them yourself. So when I say give, they can provide you with them, but they don't administer them. Also at this time, once the drugs have been made available, the patient has another opportunity to withdraw their consent and there's a waiver. The doctor or the nurse practitioner can give the drugs and when I say that, I mean provide them. They don't actually administer them or you can order them yourself. But before this, you are given another opportunity to withdraw your consent or confirm that you are still medically capable of making this decision, and then you make final consent. If you meet all the criteria, your final consent can be waived by reasonably foreseeable death, eligible for medically assisted dying, your medically assisted dying has been scheduled in writing, The doctor or nurse practitioner informs you that your decision-making capability may be lost by your scheduled date. Your final consent is waived by your consent to this scheduled date and that you're not presently demonstrating your withdrawal of consent. And that would be by those sounds, words, or gestures that we read about earlier. That's what I have for medical assistance in dying. I would like to next week talk about an opposing opinion and a pro opinion. These are two physicians on each side of this issue, and I think it's really interesting what they say, how they bring their personal experiences into the discussion, but also their professional licenses and their own personal feelings, which goes back to the idea of ethics Doctors must exercise ethical considerations when they're making these decisions about their patients. This one is no exception. I look forward to bringing the opposing and the agreeing points of view just to round out our knowledge about medical aid in dying. And I'll give you some references. I'll do some today in the show notes. 
And then also, I'll include some more next week. I'm collecting quite the list, I have to say. But I hope that you were able to follow the American Public Health Association's guidelines and my (laughs) trying to read other people's opinions. I hope that this helped you a little bit today, that you were able to get a little bit of a bigger picture of medical aid and dying, not to be called physician-assisted suicide, according to the American Public Health Association, but that is essentially what it started out being called. At any rate, until next week, thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. You can go to my website for more articles, little news pieces, or a transcript of this podcast. The website is whilewe'restillhere.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can send me an email, too. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.